Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 18 years of law enforcement analysis experience. He holds a master's in crime analysis from Tiffin University. He was born, raised, and still lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, a man who I enjoyed calling my coworker for several years. Please welcome Joseph Lorenz. Joe, how you doing? I am wonderful. How are you? It is great to talk to you and catch up. Man, it's been too long. I have been working for Vanderbilt now for 10 years, so that means it's been 10 years since I worked for Cincinnati. I can't believe it's been that long, but here we are. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. All right, so let's uh, get into this because we got a couple of great topics for today. We're going to talk about your perspective as a sworn officer, analyst, and we're also going to talk about the influence of switching police chiefs on analysis. Right. But first, let's talk about how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession. Uh, How I discovered it was I was working seconds and thirds in District 4, which east side of town. I was on my off days. I decided to, you know, in order to keep my sleep patterns correct, I was watching Discovery Channel late at night. (laughs) And they had this great little mini documentary or show about geographic profiling, talking about it in, uh, in Canada, where I believe the first programs began. I was pretty fascinated by it, and I was really interested in it. And I would say about a month, maybe two months later, a mass assignment availability came out for five crime analysts for the city. They were using all sworn officers at the time. And I was, uh, I was, believe it or not, I was the only person in district four that put in for it. (laughs) And I think the reason why was because I was the only person that knew what it was or had an idea of what it was because I'd seen the documentary earlier. Mm -hmm. So I kind of dove in with that, and I believe that was roughly around 2003, 2004. Yeah, that's how I found it. And uh, the reason why we went, there was a big push for uh, sworn officers and uh, a big push for um, mass assignment of crime analysts was because of the the collaborative agreement and the federal and the Department of Justice shakeout from the 2001 riots that occurred in Cincinnati. So So I was in graduate school when that happened. So I had two tours in Cincinnati. I was in graduate school when the riots occurred. So for those that may be unfamiliar with it, it was a scenario where, what was it? Something like it got to the point where there was 11 police involved shootings in which a person died uh, by a police officer and all of them were african-american victims and yeah. a caucasian officer so it this was, was not very different than the uh than basically we were 12 years away from, uh, ahead of the floyd thing mm-hmm. that just recently happened you know the, the the george floyd stuff in milwaukee it was not uh all too different than that so coming out of that you have the riots you have the aftermath the cleanup of course Right. And then Cincinnati kind of looks itself in the mirror and say, what can we do better? 
through a series of programs, consultants, and even the feds, as you mentioned, got involved, there was a, a series of changes that occurred. And one of which was a suggestion that one of which a suggestion was the police department needed to have an analysis function. Because at the time, there was no analysis function there at the police department. And hence the reason... There was a very small analysis function, but it was really always for the command staff and pol okay. at police headquarters because Paul Byers and... I'm, I feel terrible. I'm, I'm blanking on the uh, the civilian that was with him that was up there. He's an older gentleman at the time. But he, uh, yeah, they oh, were. Oh, I know who you're talking about. He ended up going a little small town north of the city. Correct. I think his name was Mike, actually. I can't remember his, his name either. But yeah, I know who you're talking about. It makes sense. The, the very idea that after all that had happened with the riots and everything leading up to the riots and everything like that, there was a real big push to quite frankly, have the police officers show their work, mm -hmm. you know, just, just like grade school, you got to show how you got the answer in math class. Now you have to, you know, we have to show our work. You have to earn and fight to keep the respect of the community that you're policing. So that's why, you know, and it makes sense. All right. So take us back then. It's 2004. You've gone from watching a documentary to now being an analyst. What was it like those first couple of months on the job? Because I didn't know how to use the mapping program. I didn't know any of that. I had my first two weeks of training with Steve Gottlieb up at Ohio University. At the, that's where the, uh, the program was at the time. I came back down, got in my, you know, got to my desk. And, you know, I had rulers and graph paper and <laughs> I was work, I was really working hard on learning uh, Excel and access and making sure that it all worked properly and uh, getting it was it was a bit of a rush. And I also mm -hmm. felt a little bit of pressure because I was my desk was in the office of the investigator unit. I wanted to make a splash. Sure. You know, I wanted to prove the value of what I was doing. I've always been the of the opinion when it came to this that, and this is no disrespect to the people in the command staff, but I didn't care as much about impressing them. They had to work with me anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, those are the rules. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to impress the patrol officers and I wanted to impress the detectives and the lower level supervisors like sergeants and lieutenants and some and captains, because they're not used to having this information available to them. And they don't, they're not a hundred percent sure what the worth was at the time. Sure. So if you could prove what your worth was, and, you know, quite frankly, in a very selfish way, those officers and those lower level supervisors are going to eventually, you know, quite possibly be in the command staff one day. And if you have a good, if they, if you make a good impression on them, you know, they'll respect your opinion more when they move up the chain of command. It'll pay dividends later. Yeah, right. So then what were you instructed to do? If, if not much people really knew what analysis was, what were you told to do when you got there? I didn't have too much. This was nice. This was actually very nice at the time. It was a double-edged sword, but it was very nice for me. It, I didn't really have much any marching orders. You make the job what you want, you know, what you wanted. Now, if you weren't very motivated, <laughs> that would be great because you could just sit there, yeah. but you wouldn't be sitting there for long. 
I was a little bit more motivated. So the very close to the first things I started doing was I was making con trying to make contacts through Paul Byers, mm -hmm. the, uh, the analyst on the second floor where he knew since he was the very first analyst, he knew where, where to get all the data. He was the wise sage on the top of the hill that you would ask all your questions to. And what I tried to do, my first, I, one of my first ideas was to get a list of all the people on probation and parole, separate them out by crime types, and at first just list them and break them down by neighborhoods so the investigators know that if we have a rash of burglaries and it started on this date, you know, when did the guy go on parole or when did the guy get out of prison? Mm -hmm. for burglary and you know that because of my skill level with that amount of data that was some tough sledding that was a lot of tough sledding it's it's funny that you mentioned that because that was some data that we that i was trying to get the whole time that i was there i was trying to get a direct feed from the county and you know for as loose as the sunshine laws are there in ohio that was one that was protected they did not want us messed around with the parolees and probationers because they thought we would just go pick on them and blame yeah, everything bl blame everything on them so that was something that i fought tooth and nail for the, the three years that i was in cincinnati the trick was i guess there's a lot of turnover in parole <laughs> once we finally convinced someone that our intentions were good and that this is what we were trying to do and they would start sending us the information they'd get transferred <laughs> and then we'd have to start the process all over again. And probation, since that was really a function of the courts, not even so much of, uh, you know, jail or prisons, it was the, a lot of the judges were very much convinced that probation was a rehabilitation thing that we need to leave everybody alone. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I, I had to stop doing that because I just, it was so hard to keep and keep track of who was able to get us that data and who was willing to give us that data. So then there's, there's five districts in Cincinnati. So you're just one six district. Now. There's, oh, there's six, six now. now? Okay. Yeah. But back then, back then when we're starting still, and we're still in 2004, 2005 timeframe, there's five districts, there's yeah. four other analysts and they're starting brand new too. Everybody's starting new. It wasn't centralized. It wasn't as if you guys all reported to the same sergeant. You were all localized. You all reported up to the individual district leaders that were there. And so because of that, you were all kind of doing your own thing, right? At first, yes. We all kind of, we got really what happened, what, what tied, started to tie it all together and show us that we needed to tie it all together was we partnered with UC. University of Cincinnati. Some, University of Cincinnati, excuse me, to uh, get some training on ArcMap. We would all go together to police headquarters and we would learn arc mapping and then we would start creating a version of CompStat and using the mapping systems. And we all kind of came to the conclusion that as much as possible within the constraints that we had of taking our direction from our district captains to try to keep things as similar as possible because it be, you know it was funny because this inevitably did happen some captains really wanted to impress with their comstat report and these things just got bigger and bigger and bigger and just more minutia in the data 
and more graphs and more maps. And you know, they were starting to count slides, you know, who had the most slides. And <laughs> it was almost a point of pride. Yeah. There was one time I ended up making a, a PowerPoint presentation for comps that, that was around 42 pages. I remember too, some of you were messing around with the colors too. I rem- I don't remember. Yeah. I think it might've been you that had like, I think it was a green background with red font and it looked like the the words were moving on the screen like waving back and forth it was the most <laughs> wicked thing i've seen on a screen ever in a meeting it was I, fascinating that was i won't say that was on purpose but eh, i mean we had a guy put a soundtrack to it once and after a while even the district analysts were starting to go, all right, this is getting a little bit crazy. <laughs> and we started, you know, things like the green and red, the green font on the, or the red font on the green background and stuff like that started to happen. Just kind of seeing at, at that point, everybody was so worried about making it bigger and better. We were trying to see if anybody was going to notice these things. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember there was a bet that somebody, yeah. no, I don't think anybody ever did it, but somebody was going to display the same data one week after the other to see if anybody noticed that the data changed. Well, yeah, because what would, because what was happening is as big as these reports were getting, they wanted them every week mm-hmm. for all five districts. So those meetings would take forever and, and people would start to zone out. It was like yeah. a two hour, two and a half hour CompStat meeting. And these, you know, presentations would go on and on. We would, we'd make bets to see if, you know, all right, robberies this week are going to be the same as robberies last week. And we'll see if anybody even notices. And I did it once by accident. This was honestly an accident. (laughs) We sent our, we had to send our presentations in to a central thing, get them all compiled so that they could be presented. And I clicked last week's presentation to send it and nobody noticed. I think that was after you left. That was purely by accident, but it was pretty funny. Let's get into some analyst badge stories now. And because I think it's important, your first one here is in 2003. So this is 2003, 2004 timeframe where you're just starting. Right. As you mentioned, you're trying to impress the office. You're trying right. to show your worth, show what you can do here. And you work on a burglary series. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Did you, what was going on and what did you do? Just background. There was a series of burglaries in Mount Auburn that borders the downtown area of Cincinnati. And Cincinnati is kind of shaped like a bowl where the downtown area is at the bottom of the bowl. And since and it, there's an incline, the farther out you go. So and this neighborhood, Mount Auburn, is in the district I was working in, District 4. But it was right on the border with District 1, which is downtown. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it screamed serial offender just because the MO was the same. It was a slow pitch softball as far as a uh, series remember, goes. Do you remember the MO? Um, they would enter through the back window, I believe. Uh, these were townhouses situated on the hill. So they would go into the backyard and enter through the windows in the backyard and they would take, I believe, TVs, carry them down the street. The, the houses, they had a, a brown conversion van that they were using. It was two guys. And literally, they would just carry them down the street to their van because they never really parked right in front of the house. And they would drive off. 
so like I said, it was a real, and they did it like four or five times. And the time frames were surprisingly early evening in the week on the weekends, mm-hmm. I believe. And we, uh, and so I, you know, I saw this, it stood out like a sore thumb. I put out my, my handy dandy analyst bulletin and sent it out, you know, got permission, sent it out to all the districts, especially district one and district four, because district one is fairly small and they're very close to this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they're closer to the, their district. District one's headquarters is closer to that neighborhood than district four's neighbor, uh, headquarters was. Mm-hmm. So I put it out and we had a, one of our many violent crime squads, specialty units, ad hoc crime prevention units that we put together from time to time in the city. And one of the lieutenants who I knew, because I'd worked with her previously, she saw the the bulletin, she read it. And I want to say two days later, the, you know, it came out over the radio that this was going on. And being a lieutenant for a citywide crime prevention unit, she had her radio on scan. She heard it broadcast. She knew exactly what was going on and how, where their likely lane of track or direction of travel was going to be. And she sent her cars up there and I, there was no pursuit or anything like that. It was traffic stop without incident and they arrested the guys with the property and yeah. it worked out very well. How did you know that it was a brown van that they I were witness, in? I witness accounts from the neighbors because they thought it was weird that people were carrying, you know, flat screen TVs <laughs> down the street and putting them in vans. <laughs> and Good neighborhood the, watch. Yeah. The, the funny part about that is I, it, it does amaze me because I remember, you know, when we used when we were kids and we had, you know, big TVs, they were only 32 inches at sure. most and they weighed a ton because there were two TVs and they usually had a great big wooden cabinet around it sure and nowadays you could carry you know you could carry a 60 inch TV <laughs> with one hand if you had a good place to grip it, yeah. it you know it's nothing yeah so it's it's very different but yeah eyewitness accounts were were huge good reporting was huge but yeah it was kind of a a layup of a of a series but that was my first real big win since it's a burglary and you said it was early evening on the the weekends i mean that means that the victims must have had a pretty short window of when they were leaving right they left at this time it was fine came back it, it was burgled that helped a lot it wasn't it was in the spring people weren't really leaving yet for vacations mm-hmm. so we're not talking you know weeks at an end and again you know the the uh witnesses helped out a lot because you know they said i saw the guy you know what time about noon or not noon about you know eight o'clock or seven or eight o'clock in the evening so that helped out a lot how did this change how you were viewed in the office within the investigative office not much because they're very hard they were very hard to please (laughs) there were a lot of 23-year veterans in that investigative office and you know they were hard to impress they were very strong minded about they had their way of doing it, especially those particular investigators. But, uh, you know, at the lieutenant level, at the sergeant level, at our captain's level in the command staff, it was a big deal because, like I said, the, the arrest was made by their that roving crime prevention unit that they had. And that group really directly reported to the command staff they really they didn't have a district that they reported to mm-hmm. all right so then you're in district four when did you move over to district three i moved into district three probably seven years ago seven eight years ago what had happened was the captain that i had worked for in district four got transferred to district three mm-hmm. and he wanted me to come with 
because we really did a lot of good work together. We uh, implemented a modified version of DDAX, okay. where it was DDAX focused on violent crime and drug dealing in Walnut Hills. So he ended up writing a paper about it, got it in, I don't know, one of the police chief magazines. It was uh, Captain Dan Gerard. Oh, okay. He's retired, since retired, and he's done a lot of uh, advisory work around the country for police reform and stuff like that. Yeah. So so what did you think of DDAX? The principles are good. Like anything else, the execution is variable, <laughs> depending on how well the analysts sift through the data and how well, again, it's all buy-in. With any multi-tier project where you have analysts and patrol officers and mid-level supervisors and everything like that, like that, if you get some good buy-in, you could get a lot done. Yeah. But it, you know, the level of buy-in is is variable. You know, the bigger the department, the more variable it is. So, but hmm. I, so you had mentioned there's six districts now. Did they split up District Three? Because that was ginormous. No, no, that's District Three is want to say 20 square miles, and the, the whole city is only 77 square miles. But what they split was District One. Was that, that was the smallest one? Yes, I was waiting for that. Um, <laughs> what had happened was when everything south, everything towards the river started getting redeveloped, and it's been redeveloped a great deal. You probably wouldn't even recognize, recognize it. it. They chopped off the downtown business district from over the Rhine and everything south of Central Parkway, inside baseball, I know for all the listeners. But uh, anything south of Central Parkway is now called Central Business District. And it's basically its own district now. They focus a lot on bike patrols, foot patrols, and, you know, everything in over the Rhine, Pendleton, Mount Adams. That's all still District 1, Queensgate, West End. So, yeah, they took the smallest district and they split it up. <laughs> uh, we did some studies on splitting District 3 up. We were, think, we were seriously thinking about it, and we had a pretty good idea of how to do it. As far as geographically, it's just way too expensive to make a, you know, because you have to make a new, we've already moved District 3 once, we'd have to build a new District 3 again. Yeah, It's just, it would be a lot to do. Yeah, because I think, well, back to District 1, when I was there, you know, they had the drop-in center, and I knew yeah. they were looking to move that, and then was that, it, was it Washington Park? What was the park? Been, yeah, Washington Park was right near, uh, the drop-in center, that's all been cleaned out uh, and redeveloped. The drop-in center for the homeless is now in Queensgate, mm-hmm. not too far away from the the major post office hub, if that makes, if if that jogs your memory at all. Yeah. Uh, that's no, I knew that was, the writing was on the wall there because I knew they were building some like $5 million school, like right by the drop-in center there at yes, the time. They were and building, was, they built the, they, they moved the uh, school for the creative and performing arts right across the street from Washington Park from the Pendleton neighborhood where it was before. Yeah. And just uh, moved, moved everything around and got their own district. That's, that's fascinating there. That's, that's what ended up happening there because geez, it was already the smallest one. And now you just have, you got it cut it cut in half. All right. There's been a lot of changes. Uh, Over the Rhine has been gentrified a great deal since then. Speaking of over the Rhine, just total random thought. If anybody's ever in Cincinnati, I highly recommend going to over the Rhine and doing one of the beer tours there where you go down underneath the streets 
to see like some of the bootlegging activity yeah. that went on. It, it's a fascinating tour. I'm not sure the name, but I believe one of them has actually become a bar again in its own right. Yeah. So there is an underground bar that is an old yeah. bootlegging thing and it's it's pretty neat. Yeah, it's fascinating because you know over Ryan got the name. Ryan is River, so the nor- right. northern Kentucky used to say, okay, to get the best beer, you go over the Rhine. And that's <laughs> yeah. how that's how it got its name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I guess during your time there in District Four, you were there about 10 years and yeah. in this the same district there. When you look back, what are you most proud of during your time there? That first series, there was another burglary series that wasn't that went pretty well. I was very a lot of the the stuff that I did with Captain Gerard, I'm really proud of that. We did a lot of good intelligently directed crime prevention and crime response programs there. And we and it was very effective and I I'm very proud of that. I'm also proud of the uh it, it was fairly late in my district district four time where me and another analyst helped create a uh, manpower study and that was and uh captain gerard you know took a look at it read it up and had worked a great deal with the people at the university of cincinnati he ended up actually being one of the assistant deans of their their criminalistics and uh crime analysis portion of their uh of their college so mm-hmm. when he was the assistant dean there and he went through our report fairly early on and was really impressed, showed it to the people at UC, they were fairly impressed. And we were pretty, me and, uh, and Lisa, Lisa Dotson mm-hmm. were very, we were, we were neophytes when it came to this, this kind of analysis, because it, it there was a lot of uh, new to us equations and things that we had to figure out how to apply to create a great, a good manpower study. And we picked from, you know, various different reports. And we said, you know, this report went this far, this report from, you know, this perf study from the East coast went, you know, this far for number of units and how they count things. And we, you know, and this unit from the West coast did uh, this report from the West coast did uh, how many officers, how they get officers. And we kind of all, we smushed it together (laughs) and it, it turned out really well, and uh, we've been using it, we've been doing it yearly to determine two things, how many officers we really need overall, and how many officers each district should have. What were some of the big indicators? What data had the biggest influence? We went through that, and we, some of the older studies that we, we researched, you know, they would use just population. Mm-hmm. And that that doesn't take into account how much crime is in any given population or where the crime is or anything like that. So we didn't use that. Uh, we didn't use crime reports because that's not really fair because of the number of unreported crimes. And so we decided to go almost completely strictly with calls for service, since that seems to be the truest measure of demand for our, if you look at uh, police work as any other kind of service, what's the demand for our service? And how can you measure that? Well, it's mm-hmm. calls, calls for service. So we went for that and we uh, divided it up by one person calls, two person calls. We removed all the self-initiated runs by the officers mm-hmm. because that's not fair. I mean, the more active officers you had, the more officers you would need if you mm-hmm. used self-directed patrols. Yeah, you can't do that. Point. We used the calls for service and separated out the multiple person calls for service 
and that determined how many patrol units we needed for each district. And then we multiplied it by the number of officers it would take to run that particular unit 24 hours a day, seven days a week, taking into account off days, taking into account off days, uh, training days, holidays, sick, you know, average number of sick days, all that kind of thing. You put, you know, you, you multiply it by that number and you get the number of officers you need. So that's how we did it. Hmm. So when you're analyzing this data, was there something that surprised you? What surprised me was the number of officers that using that using that formula we need as opposed to what our city I don't know if it's even in the charter, but this, what the what city hall says we're allowed to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you consider again going back to the collaborative, all the other things that an officer has to do now, you know, all the it's not just patrol and dealing with situations as they come. There's also we have community engagement. We have to we're you know we have to be very involved in. We have specific kinds of medical runs that we have to be involved with. One of the things out of the collaborative agreement was the development of our mental health response teams, which were officers handling people in uh, psychological crisis. And and again, the community groups, the mental health response teams, school resource officers, all those different things, when you push them together, we need a lot more officers. The number of officers that we are allowed to have by the city government is 1,050, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was what it was. And we probably could legitimately use 250 to 300 more than that, mm-hmm. just given, because that number was set when I was in the academy 22 years ago, 23 years ago. So now, you know, and so much has changed since then, you know, the demands for police services have increased and the nature of those demands have changed and the length of time that each of those runs takes that, you know, we could use a lot more officers, but that's what surprised me the most. Also where the the demand was highest, which was where uh, district three was huge. Mm -hmm. But again, that had a lot to do with we're about a third of the size of the of the city. And District 2 is no slouch either as far as geographic size, but they don't need nearly as much as police service as we did. Well, yes, in District 4. In District 4, right. So those that was interesting. Um, Those two things really stood out a great deal. You mentioned the charter. You think it's about a thousand fifty officers you can have. But what currently amount of officers do you have oh we are in bad we are we're not in great shape Uh, (laughs) i want to say we are about 150 to 200 short so far we have a lot of attrition from retirement right now Mm -hmm. that happened because of the hiring cycles that cincinnati had and we didn't have constant new uh police recruits going through our academy throughout the years because of economics and you know the city couldn't afford it so one of the first things we we do is we we shut down the academy for new recruits because you know onboarding a class of police officers is expensive just you know amount of teaching time health insurance every all that stuff goes into it that's really expensive equipment and you know so because of that we're at the bottom the people that were at the last peak of hiring are starting to retire and we we had a big trough in hiring so there's nobody backfilling it right now and we're at the point right at this point 
if we we just graduated a class three weeks ago, I want to say mm -hmm. we graduated a class three weeks ago, and those officers that graduated barely make up the officers that retired while they were in the academy. <laughs> so we're we're just barely treading water at this point. Mm -hmm. When hopefully we'll we'll bottom out and start to climb back up here shortly. But I think that would take another five or six years before that can happen. Yeah. So they have dropped there, right? That kicked the can down the road. Yeah. So for those that aren't familiar with drop, I mean, it's essentially a, a retirement program where officers, and it's not just officers, there's a lot of government employees that are, can be in the drop program, but basically you agree to stay on for a certain period of time, but then you have to retire Within what is it eight years? Yes, you yeah, have you have to stay in, you have to stay in for three, and you have to retire by eight. Yeah, and you don't pay into the pension anymore, but your money that you're paying that you would pay into pension goes into a separate account. I gotcha. So you, it's way more lucrative, right. to go through the drop program. Yeah, right. I gotcha. Yeah, and it's like I said, it's just kick. We just kicked the can down the road. We would have had this problem a decade ago yeah. if, if it was, you know, if we didn't have drop, but we have it now. So, Hey, this is Freddie Croft, Lieutenant with HPD. My public service announcement is to encourage people to get a T model of skill acquisition, learn a broad set of skills across many different things, and then find one that interests you and dive deep into that learn and become a subject matter expert in it. Doing that will allow you to be extremely successful in your career. Hello, this is Brian Gray. And my advice for analysts is don't settle for mediocrity. If you want to be happy in this career, long-term, you can't be a minimalist. Just don't do what you're asked for. Do what you know is right. And don't ever, ever substitute quantity for quality. And if you haven't found a way to put design to work for you, you're not doing your best work. Well, I want to move on to a slightly different topic. So I want to talk to you about the influence of a police chief on an analyst, because I think it's fascinating your career and the number of police chiefs that you've gone through over the years. When I was there, we had Tom Stryker. And he was a sworn officer, worked his way up from officer within the system, became police chief. And how long he I should have looked that up. I mean, he was police chief for a really long time. I think he was police chief close to 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I, I should look that up, too. Yeah. But it was it was a long time. He was he was police chief as long as I had been an officer up until the time he retired. So yeah. he was you were there till he retired. And that was what, 2010, 2010. So he was at that? least a 10 year police chief. Yeah. So he was there for a long time. Then they made that role where you didn't have to hire within the police department. You could go with outside of the city. Yeah, and that was so, also a, that was also a part of the collaborative agreement. Okay, that's a good point. I, I'm sorry, it wasn't a direct part of the collaborative agreement, but that law change happened because of the politics of the collaborative agreement. Oh, okay. if, if that makes any sense, it wasn't a direct part of it, but it was a part of the culture shift within the city i gotcha then you had james craig 
that comes in. He was from Maine. He only stays a year, maybe two, before he goes on to Detroit. And actually, I think he's running for mayor of Detroit right now. I can't remember. I've seen his name. Governor of Michigan, I believe. Governor. Okay. Then I saw his name in the news a couple months ago. So he's only there a short period of time, but it's an outsider coming in. And then you have Blackwell, who comes in from Columbus, Ohio. He's only there a short period of time. I want to say say three or four years. Yeah. Now you have Isaacs. That's a higher within. He was your captain when I was there. So, and he's about ready to retire now. And now you're going to get another police chief. So for your like first 10 years, you had one police chief. And now for your second 10 years, you're going to get four. Right. Yes. So I thought I find it fascinating. I had Dr. Rachel Santos on the show a couple weeks ago. We got to talking about the crime analyst function. She said that analysts shouldn't be just doing whatever they want to do. And analysis job shouldn't change if there's a change in leadership. Analysis really needs to be part of the SOP, the standard operating procedure. And in many departments, it's not. And of course, her and her husband, Roberto, have a whole book on stratified policing, which deals with the culture change of getting analysis built into the standard operating procedure. So I I think yours is going to be a good case study as to what you really see what you've experienced going through these four police chiefs in a matter of, I guess it was about 10 years. It was actually less than that as you've just gone through all these police chiefs. Take us through with Stryker and then the change with Craig and Blackwell, and then we'll get to Isaacs. Okay. With Chief Stryker, Again, this he's the chief during this great cultural shift co- coinciding with the uh, the collaborative agreement and a lot of the demands from the collaborative agreement. So his marching orders from analysts were he, he kind of wanted to know everything. And those early Comstat-like reports were very in-depth, big, long. There were no you know, there were no limitations put on him by the chief because, you know, he just wanted as much information as possible. As funny as those meetings were for the analysts, looking back at, at Chief Stryker and, you know, a little bit of rose, rose-colored glasses, he was my first chief, period. There was no doubt in my mind that he pretty much remembered everything that was going on in all those presentations. I mean, he knew the, he knew the names with of every officer and every employee that work for him. And, you know, not everybody wore name tags and we didn't wear name tags all the time, but he knew us by first name, last name, where we were from. He, he knew all of that. We started to get a bit more focused towards the end of his tenure, but he, it, it was a little bit ad hoc. The only thing as far as standard operating procedure was analysis must be done, Mm -hmm. how it was done and how it was used was something else, but we had to, we had to do analysis. Chief Craig, when he was hired, he was hired from, I'm going to ruin the town name, but he was, he was the chief in Maine and uh, not Dury, Stephen King joke. Uh, (laughs) uh, But before he was the chief in Maine, he was, I believe, at least the captain, if not an assistant chief in Los Angeles. So, and they had a, a really 
big head start in crime analysis in Los Angeles. And he really pushed for an increase in technology. He really wanted to update a, a lot. And this goes beyond crime analysis, but he really wanted to update the department. One of the downsides, and this is not speaking ill at all, of Chief Stryker, but one of the downsides of having exclusively inside hires for a police chief is that the organization kind of gets hamstrung by tradition. Mm. You know, we do what we do because we've always done it this way. Or, you know, we're not going to change anything because we've never done it that way before. But, you know, the fresh eyes from, from Chief Craig helped a great deal. He really pushed for improved technology, improved equipment for the officers, new programs for the analysts, updated mapping programs, uh, a couple of different analysis programs. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a, we'll get to that. But he really, he pushed and he wanted us to look at things in different ways. And we really tried to innovate. We worked hard towards, uh, and that was right, that was roughly around the, the time that I was working with in District 4 with Captain Gerard. I, like I said, I did some of my best work in that. So I, I really had, that was good as far as, as far as his leadership style, like I said, he was very keen to push the department forward and keep it moving. But he was also, you know, more ComStat driven. That's an influence on you because that's a change right. in your daily duties coming from the top down. Correct. Right. And I'm not a huge fan of ComStat because I, I, I don't feel that it, at least in what I've seen, it, it doesn't get towards problem solving very much. It just, here's your problems. It, your problems are worse than they were the week before. Explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly suggest that folks listen to my interview with Deb Peel, who worked at NYPD and did a good job of describing the process and what it exactly is and is not. Because I think, I think, unfortunately, so many people have taken it. And just like you were talking about before, some version of it. I think some people took what they liked about it and then didn't do the stuff that they didn't want to do kind of thing. So it's right. been kind of bastardized over the years. But I will make sure I put a link to that episode in the show notes for this episode so folks can check it out. And I just looked it up now. Stryker was there 12 years. So he wow. came on in 1999. Craig's there just less than two years. Correct. And then Blackwell's in there less than two years, too. I actually just realized that they had the same stint. One year, 11 months. Right. So Craig leaves. He takes the job in Detroit. So in two years, you're back where you started with a brand new chief, somebody Correct. that you don't know. So then how did your duties change once Blackwell came in. I can honestly say it, they didn't change at all with Blackwell, and but that's not a compliment. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to. I'm, I'm trying to be nice, but he he was not all that involved as far as that end of the department was concerned. Mm -hmm. That was not something that he was very interested in, or it didn't appear to be interested in as an analyst sitting in in those meetings. I don't remember him attending that many of them, as far as that goes. That, that was really delegated to the chief of the patrol bureau, mm -hmm. who was in charge of the different districts. Well, you know, he, he was the next in line as far as in charge of the, the individual districts. 
And there wasn't much development going forward. There was a little bit of backsliding because change is hard. And what Chief Craig was pushing for, it's easier to just go back to what we used to do. So that kind of happened because the, the thing that needs to be understood is that while we had chiefs from the outside, they didn't bring any of their any assistant chiefs from the outside with them. Mm-hmm. So the people directly under him are more comfortable with the way things used to be. So it's, it's, it's a lot easier for things to go back to the way they were. And then when Chief Blackwell resigned, Chief Isaac was hired. And again, he was a captain for me in District 4 for five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. A, a fairly long time for a district captain to be in one spot. We worked well together as, as captain, so I really don't have anything bad to say about him either. And as a chief, he did a lot of delegation as well, but he did it with an eye towards developing his assistant chiefs. He wanted his assistant chiefs, you know, he knew that he was going to retire one day and he wanted to have good candidates to replace him. So he empowered them. Yeah, he empowered them a great deal. He empowered all his assistant chiefs a great deal. There were a lot of developments, not necessarily directed by the chief, but signed off on by the chief. A lot of the innovations and things that we changed and improvements were from the bureau commander for patrol, but you know the chief had to sign off on them. And he really did empower his, assist. and he empowered a lot of people. He empowered, he let let us, you know, he would hold meetings even with directly with all the analysts to ask them if there's something that we're not looking at that perhaps we should. Those meetings are held in, I won't say held in confidence, but they were closed door meetings so that, you know, we didn't feel like we had to toe a party line and we could say, you know, what we felt could be changed or ideas that we could implement and and he took some and he didn't take others and you know he had his reasons you know some of them were budgetary some of them were too demanding of other resources you know stuff like that but Hmm. you know he had had so did once isaacs comes chief did your role change you talked about sliding back what happened once he became chief once he became chief what we were asked to look at and the type of work products that we were asked to create were different we started doing things like weekly or daily reports that were formatted to run on a loop in the district roll call rooms are you still holding weekly meetings or is weekly type meetings we're still holding a version of comstat but and we're doing it on a rotating basis back to the to the original idea of rotating every, you know, three weeks, a district has to do it. I found that, you know, a weekly CompStat, there was not enough time to see if what you were doing made a change. You know, there was no time to see a result from what, how you decided to solve an issue within your district. But three weeks, you could, you could see an increase or a decrease or no change at all. And it would give you an idea of you know, what you were doing was working or not. Hmm. So do you think they're going to hire within or do you think they're going to bring in somebody from the outside? I have no idea. I really don't. I hope it's from the inside because I think there are a couple of people within the command staff that would make a a really fine chief. Mm -hmm. But not only has the chief resigned, but we have a new mayor and we have, I want to say, practically an entirely new city council. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were no incumbents that were reelected that I can think of off the top of my head. There might be one. But my, my point being is that 
with the politics of the city in flux, such as it is, it's really hard to tell how it's going to work. All right. I'll be uh, interested to hear uh, which way it goes and how your role has changed. I, I, I think I'm a little surprised. I was expecting the role to change way more than what it did. I mean, it still changed because you still were reporting in the process of either the weekly meetings and whatnot still changed. And certainly the direction of what the department was going to focus on was, was changed. So it'll be fascinating to see where Cincinnati goes from here. All right, so let's move on now. One of the topics I wanted to talk to you about, Joe, is this idea of the sworn analyst. And when we were in the prep call, we had gotten a little bit of conversation about the path of becoming an analyst, the sworn officer becoming an analyst versus a civilian maybe coming outside to the police department coming in to be an analyst and how the road for the sworn officer to become an analyst is a lot easier than the civilian. Yeah, just as a as background, as a sworn analyst, I started as a police officer. And when I became an analyst, we had a very good idea of the type of training there was that I needed. I started with Steve Gottlieb and his group, and I went through that whole series of training. We went through basic and advanced access and Excel training. We I had training with UC for uh, ArcGIS, University of Cincinnati. It was very prescribed and regimented in that there were specific skills that I needed to acquire and theoretical background that I needed to understand. When you put that together with the experience that you have as an officer, such as how the the neighborhoods that you work, the actual geography in the very basic sense of the neighborhood you work, you know, what's on a hill, what's not on a hill and how that would affect, you know, directions of travel, the types of buildings on the streets and how that would affect the type of crime that that would be attracted to or you know what would be a comfort area for criminals depending on how the how the streets were designed and the types of buildings another crime example of this is let's say we're discussing the series that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast the burglary series with the van it helps to know and you're not necessarily going to see this if you just map it on your typical crime map with your streets and your neighborhood boundaries and everything like that, it it helps to know that that neighborhood is almost exclusively on a hill. Mm -hmm. And the the cars were always traveling toward a specific arterial road downhill from where the offenses were happening. So in that arterial road goes into a much more congested neighborhood or area of town, which would make it more difficult to find the offender as they flee the scene. But you need to know that. Or if you have a series of shootings in a particular neighborhood and they all happen roughly around that street corner and you're making your your maps, your crime maps, you kind of need to know what stores, you know, are there certain stores or businesses that could potentially be crime attractors or, you know, bases of operation for the people that are you that are committing these crimes. Like, is there a bodega on the corner that, you know, likes to sell 
in addition to underage alcohol, you know, certain drug paraphernalia? Or do they allow drug dealers to hang out in their store and use that store as a comfort area? So when you have that kind of contextual information and background, the mindset of how a report is written as a police officer and what the jargon of a police officer is another good example of that, of the department, what people mean when they write things in the narrative, all that stuff comes together and helps you become a more complete uh, crime analyst. Now, when you come in with all those skills and the theory and the training as a civilian and general, just a broad generalization, you know, directly out of college or what have you, and you come to a police department, there's no such regimented skills or training that help a civilian analyst become more complete in that there's no regimented way to get that contextual information that we were talking about to help you reach the same point as a sworn analyst. And I don't mean that to say that sworn analysts are inherently better or anything like that, by by no means. But I do know, and I have noticed in the past, that some civilian analysts, when they don't spend a lot of time outside of their office, driving around their neighborhoods that they're responsible for, the districts or the, their area of influence, you know, they lose a little bit of something and it doesn't help that, it, you know, it hinders them from becoming a better analyst. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think I understand your point. Being an officer, you're going to know the people, you're going to know the places, you're going to be able to have a general understanding of the city and be able to take its temperature, right? Right. And because of that, because of all that work, working various shifts, working various areas and with people over time, you're going to develop that knowledge and that that contact base. So when situations come up, oh, well, I'll just I can just go talk to so and so business owner or so and so that I that I know knows the street. And because there's that history, because there's that work that you put in, that's really the hardest part. Then coming into being an analyst, what you said with being motivated and capable of understanding the concepts, then it's a lot easier road to travel from there to learn all the analytical techniques, tools that you need. From the civilian perspective, and I can speak to this firsthand, like when I came to Cincinnati, I did go to graduate school there. I was there nine months in graduate school, but I didn't know the city very well. I didn't. And when I was was an analyst, I was in, I was up there in the 911 center. So I wasn't even in a district. So I didn't have a very good grasp of the nuances of, of the city. And so I, I understand the, the concept of what you're, what you're saying. And I think it is difficult. It is difficult for somebody to be an outsider coming in to gain that knowledge, even if you're doing like ride-alongs every weekend. It's right. really hard to come in and get a good understanding of a city and, and and to be able to know the people, know the areas, and be able to take the temperature, like I mentioned. Right. Uh, it's like I said, it's that it's that contextual data, that temperature that you're talking about. I do find it interesting the, the aspect from the sworn officer side, and I think you've done a great job of embracing being an analyst as a sworn officer, and because the stereotype is there, where a sworn officer may become put in for an analyst job because they want the 
the office job or they want the nine to fiver. And to them, it's just a job. It's just something to collect a paycheck. And, and you know, frankly, I hate that this is going to sound terrible. There's a reason why there's that stereotype. I mean, that does happen. I've seen it happen. I haven't seen it happen a great deal, but I've seen it happen. My point of view on this is based on the the assumption that all things being equal and you have the sworn and the civilian officer, the sworn and the civilian analyst, both capable and motivated to become really good in their in their chosen, you know, assignment or profession. Yeah. You know, as long as all things are being equal, that's the point of view I'm coming from. And when I first heard about this and then I, you know, I went to that first Gottlieb class, quite frankly, he's, he's quite the instructor and he influenced me a great deal as far as how I look at crime analysis. And it really opened up my imagination as to what it could be. Mm-hmm. That was one of the best parts of taking this position was, you know, it was a brand new position and there weren't a lot of expectations. And that means, you know, that can mean one of two things. You could either do nothing or you could push it and see how far you could push it and see, yeah. you know, and, you know, you, I also looked at it this way. I was, when I started and I said, and it was a new position and, you know, no one knew what to expect. You know, this could either fail miserably and I'm back where I started, you know, on the street and that's fine, but I really enjoyed it. I didn't want the, this to fail or this, pro, you know, this program or I I felt a responsibility to make it to do as good a job as possible because I wasn't doing it necessarily for myself. I was doing it because with anything new in a department, especially a big department, anything new is really adopted slowly and, you know, taken to heart slowly. And if, if you don't make a good impression, it's never going to be adopted or taken seriously. Yeah. And I think you were rewarded for it, to be honest with you, because I remember when I was there and there was talk of uh, budget cuts and layoffs and all the things that they were considering. You know, when you go into the totem pole there, if somebody gets laid off and you kind of work your way up, the idea was like, oh, well, someone could slip in that analyst spot. And it was the idea was you just couldn't stick anybody in there. Right. And you were a position in district four, you specialized and you were the subject matter expert. And there, it was almost laughed at when it was suggested that somebody boot you out of there because they had higher rank and to just take over as if it was no big deal. I giggled when I first (laughs) heard it because no, I mean, when you, when you put in that time for the training and everything and you, you know, what goes into it, and the number of times I banged my head on the desk because an access query didn't work because, you know, I put the wrong parentheses in or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to all of us. I did that many, many times. And I'm just thinking, and, you know, I just got past all that for the most part. And I, I just giggled at the idea that somebody with more years on, you know, I'm going to get put back on the street and they'll just put somebody else in my spot. And it's, it's going to, I giggled. I, I can't, I can't lie. I, I worked really hard. So I have a, I'll, I'll be honest, I have a little bit of an ego about it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm really, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I giggled when I heard that. I mentioned before how officers may, may treat it to just a job. You know, another frustration that I've seen is that officers will come in, get the training, be a really good analyst, and then move on, put in for somewhere else. Correct. And I'm not concluding 
therefore we shouldn't have civilian analysts sure because a as a practical matter that's not going to happen because quite frankly a sworn analyst is much more expensive than a civilian sure just you know because of contracts and the way those things work out Uh, on another front there's a lot of good civilian analysts that i've run into and what my conclusion is is that we need to find a way to speed the process of giving the civilians that contextual data, that temperature. Mm-hmm. We, you know, they're, they're, like I said, there's regimented ways to become an analyst from an officer. There's no regimented way for a civilian to get that contextual information. You know, ideas need to be bandied about at least of different methods and different things that can be done to help get an analyst up to speed within the city that they work. Ride-alongs are, they're nice, but I don't know how well, depending, especially depending on the size of the city and, and the area that, they, that they're going to be, their area of responsibility is how well ride-alongs are going to work because you can only do one or two ride-alongs a week or so. You can't, you can't really expect them to do any more than that and still have them do the job that they were hired to do and that get them all the information that they need. I think we're blessed in the city of Cincinnati that we have a very, very strong police academy that has a lot of great resources and a lot of great instructors. And I think that that would perhaps be a good starting point. I mean, they understand how to teach. I mean, that's their job. Mm -hmm. And perhaps developing a curriculum or something like that, where the analysts, new hire analysts, sit in on with the academy class that's going in the recruits about how you know the elements of crime in this and how they're how they're defined within the state of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati the report writing classes how are the officers being taught to write their reports so now you understand what the officer on the street is looking for when he's writing a report so that you know how that data is acquired and how that data is recorded. That might be very beneficial. Yeah, I think so too. I I think, you know, and a lot of guests have told me this is, you you know, the analysts have to get out from under the desk. You know, the expectation isn't that the analyst is going to know everything, but the analyst has to be resourceful and have to be able to have the network that when any question comes up that they can't get from data, that right. they can reach out and do it, right? right? And so whether that's a person, whether that's a going out there in the place, you know, just like you mentioned with that burglary series, go out to the series, go out and look at these types of houses and get a, an understanding of how the crime was committed. And that will enable you to have a better understanding of what what you're dealing with and then to may give you ideas on what to research more once you get back to the office correct that's definitely something working with people developing uh, resources developing the network is definitely something that the civilians analysts i think struggle with a good example of this and I should have brought this up earlier, a, a good understanding of it was when I moved from District 4 to District 3 as a crime analyst, all my contextual knowledge, or the vast majority of it, was District 4 and its immediate surrounding area. Mm-hmm. District 3 was completely on the other side of town. <laughs> and so a lot of, I had to relearn a, gr- a great deal of contextual information just because 
you know, I wasn't there. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't patrol there. With the size of District 3, it was quite the learning curve. It helped that I had bosses that allowed me freedom and I would occasionally borrow an investigator's car and drive around, get a good look at the neighborhoods and specifically understand where the offenses were happening and what the, you know, the flavor and the temperature of the neighborhoods. That was very important. I needed to do that. I want to say within the first week that we had built a new district in District 3, we built a new building and we had moved from from the old one to the new one. And I was driving from the new building to our CompStat meeting downtown. And on the way back, a shooting comes out and they're looking for officers to go. And I'm like, I know where that street is. I have to stop and think about it. And I had to pull off to the side and pull out my phone and pull out you know, Google Maps. And it turned out I had passed it about three or four blocks ago and I had to turn around and go back. And I ended up being one of the first people there. But like I said, you need to know, you know, there is a learning curve. It's And it, I had been at that district at that time for about a year, year and a half. And I still didn't know the district well enough to know. I know that street and I know where it's at. I think it's an interesting concept, this idea, though. I think this is actually going to be one of the questions I'm going to start asking future guests is how do civilian analysts get better acclimated to a police department? and see what different ideas I get. I agree with you. What's the best way to bring civilian analysts up to speed? And it's a really good topic. All right. We're going to finish up with personal interests. And uh, you're a movie buff. Yes. So what types of movies do you normally watch? I watch all kinds. I'm very much a genre person. I'm starting to really get into 70s science fiction. Okay. Uh, It's, you know, the special effects and production values are much worse than they are now, Mm -hmm. but the stories were much better. And the the writing, the acting was a lot better. The topics were a lot more provocative and interesting than they are nowadays. Everything seems a little bit more cookie cutter than it used to be. 70s, I, I went on a short binge of Eastern European science fiction. There's some really interesting stuff on that. I ended up reading a bunch of books on it. So, so what movie would you recommend to me? Recent release? In, in, no, 70s science fiction. All right, I'll go get it. I know exactly where it is. <laughs> As he's going to get that movie, I guess I'll tell you that we have our 100th episode coming up for Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. That will publish on Monday, March 28th, and we will have a special guest. So be on the lookout for our 100th episode on March 28th. All right, Joe, what do you got for me? <laughs> okay, the name of the movie is Stalker. It <laughs> is a... Uh... It, it was a, it's a Soviet movie. It was directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. It was based on a Soviet science fiction book called, let me see, let me make sure, uh, Roadside Picnic. And it's truly bizarre, a very interesting idea involving alien visitation to Earth, but it doesn't take a typical Western story arc. It's not about finding out why. It's not, you know, why the visit, why the aliens landed. There's no, there's no MacGuffin to chase. There's no goal at the end of the movie. It's really an interesting study in how society and communities adapt to a huge change in their world. Not, you know, some great cataclysm happens, let's say 9-11. How does that change our society? This is like a very microcosm about how society changes 
when something as extraordinary and cataclysmic as an alien visitation happens and how the world changes and how uh, the day-to-day lives of these people change. It's real neat. So is it mostly science fiction that you watch? I've gotten into a bit of 80s horror just because there's a lot of great documentaries on how they were made Mm -hmm. and, you know, what the tropes are and how they were uh, and where they started and how they developed, you know, stuff like that. It's just it's it's just an interesting mixed bag of stuff. If I'm understanding you correctly, you see how these movies age over time and understand the the perspective that they had yeah. from now right yeah. so you're talking about the 80s and there's the movie itself then there's the impact right. and then some maybe some of the behind the scenes stuff that you hear of the making of the movie or or characters in the movie yeah the thing that started me on this path was really uh i got as a gift from one of my partners in district four my patrol partner i got a box set of all the alien movies Mm-hmm. that were made up until that point. And it was so complete. They had documentaries, making of documentaries that were one and a half times as long as the movies themselves, mm-hmm. discussing how they were made, how they were written, what the, how the special effects were developed. And uh, they had a thing called, a, obviously for Alien, they had what they called a post-mortem on how the movies were received by the public and what the uh, reaction was of the studios at the time. And it involved everybody from the producers to the directors, to the, uh, to the actors, to the special effects people. And that really got me interested into the, like kind of the wider world of cinema to the point where I don't necessarily like streaming services. I'd much rather have the physical copy of the movie because of the special features that come with it yeah you just showed me your shelves of movies you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to take a picture of that so i can put it on the in the show notes okay um, yeah so is there a movie that is really popular that you just hate and you can keep you can stay in sci-fi if you want to or unless there's unless you just have one that comes to mind the movie that i just hate that everybody else loves this is going to sound terrible I, uh, who's the guy, the guy from Saturday Night Live who did the Ballad of Ricky Bobby and Anchorman and all that. Oh, okay. Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. Pretty much. I dislike all of Will Ferrell's movies (laughs) with the exception of the other guys. Oh, okay. Okay. The, the, the police procedural one, because there is just, there are some underlying things in that movie that they get so very right when it comes to police work so it kind of it hit me differently but all those all those other movies of his i really dislike and everybody else loves and i just don't get it yeah that other guys it's almost like it was a high school movie right you know how there was every high school movie you watch they have certain characters and like yep i remember that guy in high school or there was that girl in high school and the other guys that's what reminded me of you know what i knew officers that were like that or you know this this situation happened and it was relatable to me in that fashion as well right all right well our last segment to the show is words to the world and this is where i give the guest the last word joe you can promote any idea that you wish what are your words to the world? My words to the world, as far as crime analysis goes, I would have to say, especially older or more tenured analysts, don't give up. Don't get frustrated. You're always going to run into issues that, or you're going to run into people that will not accept your work. And I know it gets frustrating. 
and it would really it would be really easy just to shut it down and surf the web the rest of the week <laughs> but keep plugging away eventually you know you just you got to wait you just got to be patient and don't give up don't get frustrated very good well i leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later okay great <laughs> but i do appreciate you being on the show joe thank you so much and you be safe you too Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.